In the life of every man, there are pivotal moments. Moments when you are confronted with the reality that much of what you thought was true was a lie. You were wrong. You chose the wrong team. You read the wrong books. You had the wrong interpretations. You followed the wrong leaders. You didn't know it then. You were blissfully ignorant in your folly. But then, by the grace of God, you acquire truth. You acquire knowledge previously unknown to you. Knowledge that you are now accountable for. Knowledge that will inevitably change the trajectory of your entire life. These moments, these critical points in your story, this paradigm shift, this is what it means to get red-pilled. In the classic 1999 film, The Matrix, Neo is offered a choice. Morpheus offers our protagonist a red pill and a blue pill. Continue living your comfortable lie or take the red pill and wake up to reality as it actually is. In the year of our Lord 2020, I was a 27-year-old, young, restless, reformed, overly winsome, gospel-centered church planter, planting a church in Los Angeles, California. We launched our church plant March 1st, 2020. Two weeks after our church plant launched, the Kung Flu was released on an unsuspecting world. COVID lockdowns begin, and three 27-year-old church planters have to figure out how to shepherd our little church plant in Los Angeles through lockdowns, mask mandates, vaccinations, in-person worship, and then on to George Floyd and BLM. About this time, we begin to see a troubling trend. We begin to see a neo-Marxist, Gnostic, antinomian cancer take root in churches and preachers that we had previously looked up to. We began to realize that we were a part of a faith tradition that was fragile, biblically anemic, easily blown to and fro by winds of doctrine, and completely theologically unprepared for the onslaught of civil tyranny and neo-Marxist ideology. So we began to search for trustworthy leadership in this time of chaos and uncertainty. That's when we discovered that there was, in fact, a contingency of Christian leaders who knew what time it was. Men who were holding the line at the point of attack, uncompromisingly biblical. Men who fear God more than they fear man. We also noticed that these men who we began to look to for leadership, they all had something in common. They were all reformed. Reformed to varying degrees, to be sure, but reformed nonetheless. They were a part of a tradition that was theologically robust, historically rooted, uncompromisingly biblical, and anti-fragile. It became evident to us that what they had was exactly what the church in America needed. And so, with a renewed commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture for all of faith and life, we took the Reformation red pill and began our journey to find out just how deep the Reformation rabbit hole goes. Hello, dear viewer, and welcome to the very first episode of the Reformation Red Pill podcast. Are. I am one of the hosts, Joshua Haynes. You may know me from Twitter. Uh, I've got a pretty huge following there, you know. So that was very uh, Troy McClure of you. You may know me from such. Yeah, I mean, or my uh, my pretty big time YouTube channel. We have a hundred subscribers at this point. Sure. Okay, not a hundred, but I'm getting there, getting close. Um, and uh, I'm going to pass it over and have uh, my wonderful pastor yeah. introduce himself. Yeah, well, my name is Brooks Pottiger. Um, I have the um, the incredible privilege of being the the pastor and, and the planter of Pilgrim Hill Reformed Fellowship here in Goodlettsville, Tennessee. Um, in a few months, we'll be hitting our three-year landmark as a fellowship. Um, we are a part of of the Happy Warriors at the CREC denomination, which I'm so so thankful uh, to be shoulder to shoulder with those brothers. Um, married to uh, my beloved Laura, 
uh, who um, is as cliche as it is, my better half truly all the way down. Um, she is um, God's grace incarnate to me, and I, I love her dearly. All told, there are, are six uh, children that fall under our canopy, um, ranging from a 19-year-old, um, Taylor, who, who's at, at Lipscomb, this is his first year, all the way down to our youngest, who's a, a one-year-old, a little, little ransom boy. Um, so that's a bit about me. Uh, how about you? Tell us a bit about yourself for those who don't already know. So as I mentioned, my name is Joshua, and I, let's see, where to begin? Well, I'm married to Madison Hames. I have two children. One in the womb, one outside of the womb. The outside of the womb is 18 months, and he's just <laughs> learning how to say dada, and it's the best thing that could ever happen to hear those words. That's amazing. And, uh, yep, new little baby due in April, and uh, beyond that, I'm new to Tennessee. Yeah, so on, on that note, we were talking about this a bit earlier. A year ago, if we would go back in time, you would have been sitting, um, not, not in Goodlesfield, Tennessee, um, but right. in, in Los Angeles, California. So um, why in the world are we sitting at the same table, and how did I become your pastor? <laughs> yeah, that is a great question, and uh, we'll kind of summarize a little bit of this whole purpose for doing this podcast, the Reformation Red Pill. So a year ago, I was making the decision with two other elders to uh, close down our church plant. And uh, it was an incredibly difficult decision because um, I was a new father with a, about a three-month-old, hmm. four-month-old baby with uh, medical problems, yeah. and uh, we basically moved out to Los Angeles under this uh, in-the-city-for-the-city kind of mentality sure. to go plant a church and reach unreached people and kind of be a faithful witness in the city for Jesus, and we... I say we, me and the other two elders of the church, began to, um, yeah, we took that Reformation red pill, and we started to get into Reformed theology and realized that Reformed theology is more than just Calvinistic soteriology, mm -hmm. but it actually reaches out and touches everything. It changes the color of your entire worldview, really. And so we started to understand that and explore that, and really that ended in us... Um, beginning to question our decision and our presuppositions and everything all, everything that led us out to Los Angeles yeah. to begin with. Not, not to mention, I think it's, it is worth mentioning, that you launched services, what, one week before California COVID happened? March, <laughs> March 1st, 2020 was our very first service. So pro tip, if you want some advice on when not to plant a church, I've got you covered. I can, uh, I can write a little book on that. Um, yeah, we, we launched March 1st, 2020, and we had two services, um, very much in the vein of like a Tim Keller type of church is what we were going th going for. And uh, we had great turnout the first couple of Sundays, and then the world went insane. Uh, California locked down, yeah. and uh, we did online for a few weeks, and pretty quickly uh, we realized that we we didn't fit in in California and Los Angeles because we were itching to get back together mm -hmm. and to meet in person. And uh, to do that in Los Angeles was um, uh, heresy yeah. of the highest order. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off script a, a little bit here, but I, I'd be curious. So you get two weeks of services. You have this vision, um, even this missiological vision for what the church is going to look like. COVID happens. How does, did that impact this kind of 
uh, what we're calling this red pill moment where you realized perhaps there's a different trajectory for you. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd love to hear more, more about that. Yeah, it's interesting. I now see COVID and the lockdown and what that did to our church from our big launch to basically whittling it down to this little core team that we went out mm. there with. I see that now as such an incredible grace mm. for so many reasons, but uh, it gave us space to actually come to well, an entirely new theological world and to explore that. And um, yeah, our, our missiological convictions really, really shifted, particularly, and we'll get into this in later episodes, mm-hmm. um, uh, it, it, when our eschatology shift okay. shifted. So we, we were, you know, unexamined and uncommitted amillennialists, which I think most amillennialists are just by default. Um, not everyone. Some people really study it and come to that conviction. That's great. But I think a lot of people start listening to Tim Keller and Matt Chandler, and they say, oh, they're all amillennialists. So I'll, that makes sense. So I'll just be that. Sure. Um, and so that's kind of where we were at. We had never studied it deeply, but when we started to study it and uh, we came to post-mill convictions, that really shifted our entire missiological view from a short-term, what I've been coming to call a kamikaze Christianity, mm-hmm. where we go out, and I don't mean that in a totally negative sense. I mean, you, you think of, if, if you're thinking, how can I make the most impact at the at, at my point in history, mm-hmm. you know, with the assumption that the war is lost, mm-hmm. but I'm going to take as many as I can. I'm going to make the b- biggest impact against the enemy as I can. So, you know, you kind of go out into a difficult city, into a diff- difficult uh, landscape, and you sacrifice whatever needs to be sacrificed to win a few, mm-hmm. right? Um, to, so the Great Commission in that, in that sense really is just how many, how can I get a few people um, out of Vietnam before it all falls apart, right? Um, but then when we came to this post-mill conviction, it shifted our entire missiological framework from thinking short-term, how can I just be a faithful witness and get a few people saved, to, wait a second, what if we win the war, and if we are actually, if, if Jesus actually meant for us to win the war, that's going to change our battle tactics. And so when we started to understand that and come to those convictions, we had this kind of uh-oh moment of like, oh, there is no long-term viability for our church in Los Angeles. Uh, so, so the grace of COVID is that it forced you almost not not to hit pause, but you didn't get this ton of momentum in a direction that you realize may have actually been really hard plowing that wasn't what you think is wisest. Yeah. So, yeah, the grace of COVID, that's a great way to put it. The, <laughs> the, the grace of COVID for us was that it, it, it put a hard pause on that, like you said, that momentum. Yeah. And uh, that that was a grace because whenever we took the, our Reformation red pill, whenever we start, and for us to be clear, what really did it for us, it wasn't just it, what post post millennialism wasn't the intro. The intro for us was seeing some significant problems in the evangelical landscape. Um, we were very much disciples of you know Jesus first, obviously, but then we all follow. If, if you're a pastor. You're constantly podcasting. You're constantly listening to other pastors and sermons, and how are you? Yeah, yeah, you're look. Yeah, you're looking. We have the incredible blessing of the internet that connects us to the most, you know, talented and gifted communicators and theologians of all time. Yeah. And so we're trying to soak that in. And we started seeing, um, yeah, we were really troubled by what we were seeing from the, broadly speaking, the evangelical leadership when it came to responses, uh, with uh, responses to COVID. And Black Lives Matter. Those were the two things in 2020 that 
really shook us because we were seeing um, just a generalized submission to the nonsense of authoritarian government shutdowns that and just saying, okay, yeah, we won't we won't meet. We won't worship God together. Right. Yeah, we'll we'll force our people to wear masks. You know, we'll you know, and it's almost like we're separating the clean from the unclean. And it was it was just really ugly. We were seeing that in churches that we had formerly really respected mm-hmm. with that. So we were seeing just a capitulation to the tyranny that the government was putting and seeing for me, there was these moments where it was like, okay, essential workers. That phrase mm. where it was like, okay. You know what is essential? Weed stores and liquor stores. You know what's not essential? Pastors right. and churches. And you're in California during that, where it's right at the the uh, belly of the beast with, with oh my a, gosh, a lot so you're dichotomy. exactly yeah. so you're locked down in your homes. But if you need to get out for some weed, that's essential. Right. right. But if you need to get out to worship together and and, and have your soul fed, mm-hmm. no, 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 that's you're, you're, that's against the right. rules. And, right? and and the primary warning from many leaders in the church being. A, a careful, winsome, non-offensive right. um, response to that when people are out of church for over a year. Right. As if perhaps that could be a satanic tactic. Here. Yes. No, I remember <laughs> distinctly whenever me and the other elders of the church were getting together trying to decide some of our response to COVID. We pretty quickly decided to meet outside um, because we couldn't rent a space nowhere. You couldn't meet inside anywhere. So we met outside at a park in the neighborhood of Venice, and uh, we met every Sunday for, I think, three years or two and a half years before we actually uh, shut down. So we started meeting outside. And <laughs> I remember we got a, uh, um, we had some people that didn't like that we were out there, you know, but uh, we had one three star review on Google from just a passerby <laughs> who was like, you can worship Jesus in your own home. You're going to get everyone sick, but they didn't want to get. Give us one star for some reason. They didn't want to get on God's bad side. That's I don't not, know. Not too bad. Yeah, three stars, not bad. So we, so we were, you know, middle of the road kind of church according to Google. Um, so how, how, why are you sitting here with me now? How, how did we, how did we connect? Right. So whenever we, oh yeah. So when we decided to um, shut the church down, the, 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 the reasoning that led to that. Oh, hold on. Let me go back. Yeah. Um, right. So I remember when we were elders deciding how to respond to COVID, because really what led to the the Reformation red pill was a response, was us seeing the church's response to COVID and, mm-hmm. and Black Lives Matter. And I remember sitting with my other elders around a table, deciding how are we going to respond to COVID? Are we going to, we're meeting outside, are we going to force everyone to wear masks or not? That was a big question. Mm-hmm. We were going back and forth on it, and we realized we would be binding the consciences mm-hmm. of our parishioners if we forced anyone to wear a mask, um, but by, but if we don't force, if we leave it to them to decide, by nature we are taking like a political stance almost, mm-hmm, right? You know, and so, but we eventually all, after some de- deliberation, decided this it would be wrong to force our people to, because there are people in our congregation that were saying, no, I I am convicted that this is not that this kind of capitulation to the government, mm-hmm. this nonsense that the government is uh, pushing on us. Right goes against my conscience, and if we have to wear masks, I don't want to come. Right. And at, at, at the time, people would scoff at that idea, but now I totally understand it. Mm-hmm. I totally understand It's like if the government, I heard Doug Wilson say, if the government says on Tuesdays you must wear a pink hat, mm-hmm. you have a responsibility mm-hmm. to not wear a pink hat because they have overstepped their bounds. They are, they are putting laws, they are um, restricting you and crossing their authority that God's given them. Yeah. 
And so, uh, so yeah, we, we ended up deciding not to do, not to have the mask. And that was like kind of a political statement. And so then we started to see, okay, who else is responding? Like, who can we look to in this COVID response? Mm. And we started to notice a trend that the people who were really standing firm on the word of God, the people who were not capitulating to government tyranny were all in a particular camp, <laughs> right? It seemed to be the case that they were all at some level reformed, not all, but there's in the reformed world there was this no we we are going to follow and subscribe to what the word of God says and not what the government mm-hmm. says, um, and that was very attractive. And then we started yeah we, just a stalwart. You may not cross this line. We will not allow it. And so that was really attractive. So that was one thing that kind of led us into this dark roast, what I'm calling dark roast reformation, where we were just Calvinistic in our soteriology, kind of like the David Platts and the John MacArthur's and the John Pipers, who had Calvinism in our soteriology, but it didn't go any deeper. So that's kind of where we were. But then we started seeing the people who were really standing firm. I think Cal- I think MacArthur's undercover uh, dark roast. I think before he goes out, <laughs> yeah, 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 I think so too. Like I, I just see the last week of his life, him writing like one final blog post that says, "This whole time I've actually been thoroughly covenanted." Go baptize your babies. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. No, that's absolutely that's funny. So we started seeing this this uh, um, stalwart response from the reformed world, which like piqued our interest to say, okay, um, not only are most of these guys Calvinistic, they have something more. Mm. And the other two C's that I talk about, the three C's of dark roast uh, reform theology, in, in my view, it's my term, I get to come up with the, um, <laughs> with the definition. So uh, as Calvinistic, covenantal, and confessional. And I noticed that the people who had the s- strongest responses to COVID, and in a second I'll get to Black Lives Matter, fit under that rubric mm-hmm. of not just Calvinistic, but also covenantal and confessional. And uh, so, so I saw a strong response there. And then th- the other thing that really pushed us over into this dark roast reform theology was the response to Black Lives Matter. We were in Los Angeles where it was, I mean, literally rioting in the streets, mm-hmm. uh, and everyone's posting the black square on their Instagram. Everyone's, I'm seeing people in my non-denominational denomination posting black squares and going to Black Lives Matter rallies and marches and marching with them. Yeah, but not to church, (laughs) right? Yeah, Yeah, man. Oh, man, it was so troubling. It's a worship service. It's just... 100%. Right. Yeah, and so I'm seeing that from people in my church planting ethos, Hmm. um, really fully supporting Black Lives Matter, going in the marches. And that, at the time, I couldn't quite articulate why, but that was really troubling to me. Yeah. That was really troubling. Um, and then I, as I started to get into this dark roast, uh, reformed world, I read Vody Bauckham's book, um, Fault Lines, um, along with a spate of other books uh, in, in this range. And I started to see, oh my gosh, the entire big Eva evangelical gospel-centered world is... Un, I think unwittingly being infected with this neo-Marxist worldview that is incompatible with mm-hmm. the gospel. Right. But they don't see it. They see it as, you know, there was that whole uh, controversy in the SBC about, we're just going to use it as an analytical tool. Right. Right. Um, and so we started saying, anyone who is capitulating on this issue, on the Black Lives Matter issue, is infected. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that they there's no cure, but it means that anyone who is it starts with repentance. Exactly. It's got to start with repentance. Not, not with nuance. That's exactly Not with right. articulating a little better with first repentance. That is actually a, a false gospel to start by default categorizing people as oppressors 
and um, the the uh, the oppressed. Um, Absolutely, I'm still honestly, I still hold out hope for men like David Platt, men like Matt Chandler, who I remember seeing videos talking about their white privilege, talking about just using the terminology of the left, and I I believe they were being sincere. Like it's not like they were just trying to I'm going to sneak some Marxism in here, but they but they were wrong, mm-hmm. and and they were and not only were they wrong, they were wrong in such a way as to lead thousands, I don't know how, who knows how many people down a rabbit trail, down a rabbit hole that led into it was basically the first step into progressive Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now they're not going that way, but they're tacit um, going tacitly going along with mm-hmm. this neo-Marxist worldview and bringing it into their theology. I can't has done damage, mm-hmm. and it's got there's got to be actual acknowledgement and repentance of that. So anyway, all these guys that I were fo- that I followed before um, in the kind of big evil world were going soft on COVID. They were going soft on Black Lives Matter, and we're out here a brand new church plant looking for who are we going to look to? Mm-hmm. What? How do we deal? We're and way too young. I now acknowledge, but we were 27 year old church planter elders yeah. looking for. Looking, where do we look to? Where, who, who are we going to look to to lead us? Who are we going to look to to help us with the, through these answers? And that's whenever we started to come across got men like Doug Wilson, men like Bodie Bauckham and James White, and all these people that I would put in the dark roast reform camp. And so that really is what led us into our Reformation red pill, was seeing a, an anemia in the broader evangelical gospel-centered world that we had been discipled in, seeing a uh, the the doctrine that I have pinpointed as as the systemic to use that word <laughs> the systemic problem in the the kind of the big eva, uh, evangelical world is and uh, really not a firm foundation in the sufficiency of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know they may defend it in you know, uh, a, de- a theological debate. Mm-hmm. But as far as how do we apply all of Scripture to all of faith and life, right. it wasn't there. It, right. it, it became, how do we apply all of Scripture to all of faith? Right, and, and, and that's where um, doing that's hard, um, applying Scripture mm-hmm. to really challenging situations is, is not easy. Right. Um, and that's I've I've used the language of having an Issachar impulse. Mm. So so the men of Issachar, um, as you're categorizing David's mighty men, they were the men, um, the men of Issachar. What their superpower was, they understood the times mm. and they knew how Israel ought to respond. And part of my, my experience, and and again, I was a pastor during that time, so I sympathize with with the right. challenge that it was. But you have a bunch of pastors who really were caught off guard by the play that was being run by the enemy during that time to undermine the church. And so you're just Googling it in real time, trying to figure out how how do you respond. Um, what's so helpful about some of the men you've mentioned is they've been writing about this for decades. For decades exactly they've been right. saying, so this ideas have consequences. Mm. This directly leads to there. Right. So it's not it's not Googling um, in real time. But because a lot of pastors really didn't know how to apply the Word of God to this. How, how does Romans 13 relate differently when you're a subject or, or when you're a citizen? Right. That's that's a question. That takes thought and nuance. You have to understand actually how Romans 13 applies and how, like you said, it's actually a Christian's responsibility when his leaders are not 
leading in line with what they promised to lead according mm. to, namely the Constitution. Exactly. You now have a responsibility to resist that. Well, that that's a nuanced, thoughtful theological response according to the Bible that so many leaders were not prepared for. So this is the language they used. I don't want to get into the weeds. Right. That's right. <laughs> and it's really a cover-up for, I don't know how to talk about that, so let's just talk about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus again. But you have all of these sheep saying, but how do we think about masking? And how do we think about BLM? And it's, I, I don't want to get in the weeds. Right. And if you say something that's offensive, you've probably gotten the weeds and you probably need to repent. Right. When it's like... No, the reformers thought very deeply about these. That's things. exactly right. Um, reform theology is not just tulip. Um, the institutes are a very thick book, and apparently, it's full of weeds because Calvin's bringing the Bible to bear very thoughtfully. Or you have Samuel Rutherford, Lex, mm. Lex Rec, a very thick book about how do we think about the law and the church and the king and our responsibility here. And there just were not many men of Issachar. And so it, it sounds like you heard some of that and were, were drawn to it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and that, I would say, what you just described was the tipping point that led us. That w- it, it was almost the pinpoint of our like Reformation red pill was seeing, why is it, asking the question, why is it? that these guys over here, specifically the CREC, that's the denomination that we're a part of, that I've come in and joined, and uh, that you're a pastor in. Um, why is it that they n- seemingly just knew how to respond, mm-hmm. right? So many pastors that I was following, even people in my church planting sphere, it seemed as though they were just pulling Bible verses out of a hat to try to respond, you know? Uh and eisegeting them in real mm-hmm. time, right? So it's like, uh, love your neighbor as yourself means wear the mask. Yeah. You know, and no theological depth, no historically rooted understanding of how our theology how our theology applies to this particular situation. But then over here in this camp, particularly the CREC, I saw they know how to respond to this. Mm-hmm. They were ready for it theologically. There was a backbone and a framework that had them as men of Issachar who knew what time it was mm-hmm. and were ready theologically and biblically to apply the scriptures in this particular state. So that's what really attracted us to um, this dark roast reformed world, was seeing, hey, these guys know what time it is. Mm-hmm. Exactly what you're saying. These guys know what time it is. A- and be because they have such a deep reformational understanding, they would also be able, be able to articulate biblically why it is divisive to wear a mask in church that says, love thy neighbor, mm. because that is binding someone else's conscience. Right. Which, wear the mask, but you don't write, love thy neighbor on it, because you are implying if you're not, you're not loving your neighbor. Exactly. And there, the Bible says things of, about this, that that's a, a reformational um, value, is mm. understanding the binding of the conscience and how Christians ought not do that. That's, that's, that's great. Yeah. Um, so for as far as our journey, we we then decided, okay, uh, we we're going this Reformation route. So we went from this kind of winsome, big Eva Tim Keller type of church model to becoming convicted of these um, uh, reform doctrines. So we basically started trying to reform our little church, hmm. uh, and as we did that as we began to work through these different doctrines. We started with our doctrine of God. Even I realized, like I'm, I am a 
I am an elder at a church, and I cannot articulate my doctrine of God mm. well. You know, I can say I believe in the Trinity, I have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but I had no—I couldn't have told you what the simplicity of God was. I couldn't have told you—I was, I was real, I realized how underprepared I was. I was—at the time, I had just transitioned to go to Westminster Theological Seminary, so I'm going through that. Mm-hmm. That was a part of us reforming the church, yeah. you know, because actually coming into rich, full, you know— um, historically rooted doctrines, and so we were changing the the very nature of our church, and but beyond just the theo- theological realities that we were sh- shifting in in real time, there was a distinct tonal shift as well. We went from this winsome model that was convicted that we want a seat at the table, mm-hmm. right? We want a chance to win someone to Jesus. Right, so we want to be as winsome as possible. You know, if I'm preaching on homosexuality, I'm going to spend 15 minutes talking about how all sexual sin is sin before God, and you know, uh, I have gay friends, and if you're gay and you're here or you know someone who's gay, we want you to know that we love you and all true things. But you spend 15 minutes qualifying, and then you name it as a sin, and then you spend the next 15 minutes apologizing or nuancing or and there was no there's, there was no recognition in my preaching before that actually sexual sin particularly sodomy and gay marriage and the transgender nonsense that's going on in our culture these are chief sins and chief idols in our culture we can't just tenderly go at those and just kind of like maybe it's not a good idea maybe just think of it this way and no these are these are the the damning idols of our culture that are rotting are rotting our entire civilization, yeah. right? We've got to go with those, like with St. Boniface with an axe, mm-hmm. you know? And so I began to shift that tone in my preaching. I was really convicted, particularly of a, with a vote, many of you have probably seen this clip from Vody Bauckham, mm-hmm. where he describes that exact phenomenon of the, yeah. the pastor who just qualifies nuance, qualifies nuance. Is, is that the 11th commandment thing? I or, think that was in okay. that one. Yeah, 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 just the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice, right. and I don't care about the other 10. Right. Yeah, I heard that from Vody Bauckham, and it oh, yeah. struck me. No, I, I was oh. right there as well. I mean, I was a pastor in Los Angeles as well um, years ago, and, and I felt that pressure heavily mm. um, that if just that feministic, even oppressive, if I say anything that will offend anybody, I need to, to, to go and try to diffuse it as much as I can just to make sure this actually doesn't land with any weight that will <laughs> yeah. give me any resistance. That's right, that's right. And, um, yeah, I, I've had to repent of that as well, that that um, impulse. Gosh. Um, so I, I, feel, I feel that. And that pressure is is heavy. Mm. Um, idols hate to be toppled. Right. And when men are put in leadership before they're mature enough, they are very easily kowtowed down against that. I'm so glad that you even used the term that I've had to repent of that because that's I've been convicted of that myself. And even on Twitter, I think one of the reasons that people have begun to follow me on Twitter is because I have been just publicly repenting. Yeah. Um, and saying I was a I was a pastor and I had it wrong. Mm-hmm. I was a pastor, I had it wrong. Yeah. And I led people in down a wrong path, and I need to repent of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and, and I, th- I mean, all Reformation begins with repentance. Mm. Ironically, the, the first of the 95 Theses is the Christian life is one of continual repentance. And right. so even in this podcast, it's not two guys who finally reached the summit of Sinai That's exactly right. saying, here's all the wisdom you could ever know. It's This is part of um, talking about even our story of repentance. That's right. Um, and how, yeah, how the Lord has, has uh, 
led us to the place that we are. Yeah. That and I and I hold out hope for some of these leaders who really led people astray, mm-hmm. that they will see the value and actually publicly repenting and saying we got it wrong. Mm-hmm. That I mean, I that would win so much respect for me, um, and I pray that God brings about that kind of humility in some of these big Eva leaders to say, hey, we really had it wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's so necessary to move forward because, frankly. These men who have read their books, I follow their podcasts, I listen to their sermons for years and years and years. I won't recommend them anymore. I won't. And and they have great things. They had great things to say. They discipled me greatly. But I, I sense, and I don't despise them. I'm not embittered towards them. But if I can't, if I don't see like a public repentance of where they led people astray, I can't trust them. I can't trust them. So I don't want to put someone, put them in front of somebody and. I don't. I don't know if I can trust them in the future, right. you know. And so I, I do hold out hope for a lot of these guys that that we will see, you know, maybe a spate of public repentance over the course of the next few years because it's becoming so obvious that it was wrong. Um, you know, people are waking up. Even liberal people are saying, "Yeah, we kind of had it. We went a little crazy with COVID. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Black Lives Matter turns out to be a big scam, and it's all about <laughs> right. money." Even people, even more liberal people, are waking up to that. So I hope and pray that our the big evil leaders will say, "Yeah, we had it wrong. We need to repent." So anyway, uh, that's uh, getting back on the yeah. on the subject of uh, when we decided to close down, uh, or what led us to close down was really we we started reforming our church, and that started, that actually just started to some people really liked it. A lot of people were like, <laughs> "We didn't." We had tearful exits yeah, from our it's services. Kind of a bait and switch, right? <laughs> it, that's what it was. And I don't, I don't resent or hold any hard feelings towards anyone yeah. who left our church because the reality is that we changed. Mm-hmm. We changed. Um, that wasn't what they signed up for. Right. They signed up for the winsome, the winsome model. Sure. And as we started to reform, uh, some people just <laughs> they did not like it at all. I and I can remember a conversation I had with um, a parishioner. And they said, no one in our church is gay or struggles with homosexuality, which actually, find out later, wasn't even true. But um, they said, no one in our church is gay or struggles with homosexuality. Why would you spend time talking about that or preaching about that? Because I had, I didn't bring it up often when it, when it was relevant in the text. I brought it up. That along with transgenderism. I th- those. But anyway, she brought up, no one's struggling with that in our congregation. Why would you bring that up? And I had to tell her. It doesn't matter if nobody in our conversation is struggling with being attracted to the same sex or dressing up delusionally as the other sex. Mm-hmm. Everyone in our conversation is tempted to be silent about that, to kowtow to the cancel mob. Everyone in our congregation has, or not everyone, but many people in our congregation are in work situations right. where it's going to take courage yeah. for them to speak the truth on these issues. And if their pastor doesn't even have the courage to speak the truth on these issues... How in the world are they? Exactly. Right. Exactly. So like when they're told, you must put your pronouns. You, you will begin this meeting with pronouns. As Christians, we... We say no. We, we cannot do that. We, That's exactly we right. We will not live in funhouse mirror land. We refuse That's right. to do that. And that really does take a real spine to do that. Absolutely. Um, and a, a confidence that you have the applause of heaven upon you. When, when you do that. Because you will not have the applause of your coworkers and your boss. Right. You may lose your job. Right. There, there are real consequences. Right. So it begins with the with the pulpit. Yeah. It begins with the pastor being able to have the courage to say what's true, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm the, I was, a, you know, we, we pastors are in a position where we're not going to lose our job for speaking the truth. Mm-hmm. Now we may take some heat, I don't know, in the culture or in our city or something like that. But 
you know, we have the privilege of not having our jobs at stake, whereas our parishioners, they're, they, they're going to even take more courage. Yeah. It will take more courage for them yeah. than it will for us. Right. So it's, it has to start with us. Um, anyway, so we started to reform and uh, kind of change that model from the winsome model to what I, what I, the, the, the way I've been thinking about it is from the winsome model to the cultural reformation model. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doug Wilson says, you can't fight a culture war without a culture. I began to realize that the evangelical church in America, we have become cultural leeches. 300 years ago, Christians were creating culture. We were making all the beautiful art. We were making incredible architecture. We were building. We had beauty, goodness. See, we're so good in, in the Christian world with truth and goodness We've just lost beauty, mm, yeah. and that is the, so essential for culture building. Oh, it's a transcendent virtue, absolutely. You know, yeah. and so, um, so I began to realize that we we have become cultural leeches. We just take what the world is doing and give you the Christian version do of it, worse. it and do it worse. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and do it a little cheesier, you know, a little preachier, and and then but we repackage it instead of actually building a robust culture that is rooted and grounded in the Word of God, mm-hmm. and uh, what. That was a big wake-up call for me. Was like we've got to be cultural reformers. We've got to, we we can't fight this culture war if we don't have a culture to begin with. Where do we go to yeah. think through how to create a culture? We go to the Word of God. Yeah. Well, and and that's even me uh, in my journey towards the CREC. That's something that I was so struck by was um, the beauty of the culture, and it was so different that whatever they were doing, they were doing on purpose. Yeah. And very robustly. And I would listen to, to, to some um, lectures on it and, and some teachings, and I thought, man, they, they are really like tuned into to what we need today. Like, I, they must have released this last month, and it's like twenty or thirty years. <laughs> yeah, ago that's right. That they and so to to really see um, the fruit of a culture that's grown um, still very much in process, sure. um, but over a couple decades um, was a uh, a positive thing. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that was done on purpose and was. In my eyes, ob- objectively beautiful. I say that's. I literally just said subjectively something. <laughs> no, that that is objectively absolutely. You see, I'm still trying to get the yeah the modern. We're still stench. shaking the dust. You're right, right. Yeah, right. yeah. Absolutely. Um, still, you can repent for that on Twitter yeah, later. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, I'm sure, no, I'm sure my two followers will really <laughs> appreciate. I'm one of them, so I do appreciate. It. Um, no, uh, no, you're you're absolutely right in that and. That exact phenomenon, what you're describing, the culture of the CREC, was what attracted us, one of the huge things that attracted us there to begin with. So we're as we're going through this Reformation journey, part of that Reformation journey was realizing that, wait a second, churches in the New Testament don't seem like they're just atomi- atomistically floating as their own little individual congregations. I see councils. I see presbyteries. I don't know. I see the church at Corinth, and that was encompassing all of the different churches in Corinth, mm-hmm. right? And so I began to realize, like, we're in, we're a non-denominational church. We have no oversight. We have no accountability. We're a bunch of 27-year-old, passionate young guys, yeah, with no oversight or accountability other than a sister church that sent us out that we meet up once a week to talk about talk about some pastoral counseling issues or different things like that. I'm thankful for for them sure. for sure, but there was not there was no real oversight, not to mention that our elder qualification, our elder process w- was a joke, frankly. 
Um, so we were constantly dealing with imposter syndrome. Absolutely. How could so, you not? Yeah. Exactly. You know, and so all that to say, we we began to crave that oversight and accountability. And so we looked at denominations. And then everything... And real quick, because this is just something that I've come to realize more and more what, what, um, that has had such a negative impact on the church is because so many pastors didn't have a, a thorough vetting preparation process mm. um, where they didn't have to stand before very competent men and answer questions for a while about their their beliefs. Um, they have the imposter's syndrome, um, which means um, they, they often feel shame, Yep. Um, which means in the pulpit, that will kind of ooze out some. And what you started to see is rather than virtue being the highest virtue that we're after, vulnerability yeah, became the highest virtue oh, in a lot of that, that world. And it really was because it was a cathartic space for pastors who felt like they were not worthy of the post, um, trying to deal oh with that gosh. shame in real time. Preach. Um, and, yeah, and so vulnerability is the highest virtue. Well, that's for that's for a reason. It's, it's, it's because you don't feel confident. And it's actually not humble. It's actually proud um, <laughs> because it's it, it becomes about you. And again, I, I know that temptation back in, in, in California um, uh, especially. Um, but... Anyways, I think there's a lot. If you pull on that thread for that that sweater, a lot un unravels. Oh my gosh! You have that. these pastors who are using the pulpit on Sundays as their personal confession personal. booth. Yeah. You know, and 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 then they get all these pats on the shoulder afterwards. Of, oh, me too. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. I struggle with sin too. And, and the I, reason that they're happy is because it doesn't call them to change. That's exactly right. <laughs> so it, yeah, keep it just makes that, them feel better. Right, keep, but it, but it but it ultimately doesn't. And that's right. right. Yeah, it doesn't bring about the gospel solution. Right. Right. Which isn't just confession. It's repentance and obedience. Right, and change, yeah. Yeah, and that's a huge... I mean, we can get into it, and we'll get into it in future episodes, sure. but the reality of the what was really lacking in the gospel-centered movement was not calling people to obedience. And if you do, you're a legalist. You're a legalist. Yeah. Right. Um, so we became anti... Like, the gospel-centered movement accidentally became antinomian. Right. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that in future episodes. But so, but what, what, what we're seeing in this beautiful culture at the, at the CREC, as a church... We're looking for a denomination, and we're. I remember both me and my one of my co-pastor were having actually having dreams about being in Moscow at a Sabbath dinner. <laughs> like we're getting these little window looking, like look looking through, kind of like like I don't know, poor beggars, just like I wish I could have something like that, you know, and seeing this rich culture that is, like I said, rooted and grounded in the Word of God, um, that celebrates the things of God. And we're like, we want that so bad for our families, for our parishioners. So we, so then we, okay, let's just check out the CREC. Let's see. Um, so we reach out to the CREC on our, um, on the on the left coast, uh, the presbytery out there that kind of encompasses uh, Washington and Oregon and California. And they say, hey, our presbytery meeting is in a couple of weeks. Why don't you guys just come and visit and take a look? And see if this is something that would be a good fit for you guys, and then maybe you guys can become a mission church, which is you know kind of like a, the process of joining the denomination. And so we said, okay, yeah, let's do it. Ironically, the week before that was my non-denominational denominational meeting, where our not, our little non-denominational church planting uh, group got together and 
basically had a denominational meeting, checked in with the churches, seeing how to see how things were going at the various churches. What is our mission? What is our vision? Kind of clarifying. And we we had that meeting where all of a sudden, after we've been going through this Reformation journey, we were just like the weirdos. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it was us at our church and one other guy who had been uh, kind of getting Reformation red-pilled as well. And we get to this meeting and we start bringing up, you know, one, we bring up how eschatology shifts your missiological views, which we got into, which we'll get into in future episodes, and how that was making us think long-term and, may- hey, maybe we don't need to be just begging for a seat at the table. What if we start building our own tables and we start thinking through the missiological um, implications of eschatology? We start talking through this stuff, just and and we're getting a lot of pushback yeah. um, from all the other guys, except one. And we weren't. For those of you who don't know, Doug Wilson in the uh, in the church world is a little bit of a uh, would you say a fork in the road. Oftentimes. Yeah. Get very polarizing. Polarizing, yeah. that's the word. Yeah. And uh, so we weren't going to bring him up, but this other guy who's just like alpha, this dude, bald guy, <laughs> huge like CrossFit guy, he sits down, he's like, well, Doug Wilson says we should be building our own tables. <laughs> <laughs> and we just like uh, looked at him, we just started laughing. He we don't speak of, yes. Yeah, yeah he who must not be named. Right. Because, and the reason why men in our non-denominational denomination uh, didn't like him is because Doug Wilson was calling out churches for capitulating during Black Lives Matter and COVID. Yeah. He was and he wasn't calling them out by name, but he was he was sounding the alarm bells. He was a the Minovisker, knew what time it was, yeah. was calling calling balls and strikes as they came. And then it was making other pastors feel silly and stupid and ashamed for the ways that they've led their congregation mm-hmm. and, you know, essentially calling them to repentance and they didn't want to. Um and so it was very heated. It was a super intense meeting, and we just left being like, we are outcasts in our own like church planting network. Mm. Um, there wasn't hostility. I want to be clear. Actually, there was, you know, some of those guys were so kind, mm. loving. I, I really do care about them. I disagreed very intensely now with a lot of their views, but um, but there was kindness towards us, sure. and there wasn't like a we're leaving. We don't like you. And, and again, to, to be fair. You changed. That's exactly right. That's exactly change. right. And yeah. so I, yeah, I can appreciate yep. that. Yep, absolutely. And so we kind of felt like these outcasts in our own sphere. And then the next week, we go to this Presbytery meeting with the mm. CREC. And oh my goodness, I will never forget it because it, so to put it in context, we're trying to decide, do we try this Reformation uh, do we try this uh, cultural reformation model in LA where we had come to plant, mm-hmm. or do we say we've this? It's all too much. We've changed too much. We need to close it down and figure something else out. So we're 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 balancing. We're trying to figure out which direction are we going to go. So we go into the CREC Presbytery meeting with that in our minds. We're going to run our story by the people there mm-hmm. and see what they think. Men who are older and wiser, should we keep going or should we pull the plug? And giving, kind of giving our story to them. Yeah, yeah. So we get there, and the very first night is this incredible feast with little kids all running around, and every it's just joy. Yeah. And they're just well. We start asking all these questions that we're working through theological questions, and they're just excited for us. And we start talking to them, and then we sit down for dinner, and they say, "Okay, here's your songbooks," and they pass out bulletins, and I'm like, what? 
where's your screen? Where do you, where's the projector? You where's know, the fog? Like, how do you yeah, know? yeah. And somebody gets on the piano and they say, Oh, we're going to sing Psalm 117. And I was like, Okay, turn. And everyone stands up and I hear the most, I don't know how electric, masculine singing that I have ever witnessed up until this point where there is just excitement and joy and passion for the Lord mm. in the air, in the singing, and the song ends. And it's a difficult song. I can't even sing it. I, I'm reading the words. I can't keep up. It's like, this is really tough. <laughs> but then there's like six-year-olds next to me that are just singing it. Like doing cartwheels while singing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm just like, what? They know what? they're part of the canon. Am I in <laughs> Narnia right now? Where? What is this? And then the song ends, and everyone amens so loud mm. that all the hair stands up on my arms. Mm. And I was like, these people have something wonderful. This is a culture that can win a culture war. Um, I'll never forget that amen, because I now see that amen as the final nail in the coffin for my church plan. And because I realize I have not been trained to create this kind of culture. I have not been trained to plant this kind of church. This is, what, this is the culture I want for my family. This is the culture I want for my parishioners, but I can't give it to them. Right. You can't give what you don't have. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so, uh, and for me, I had basically decided in that moment, I, I, I say that, I think I did. I was still working through it and processing, but it was a huge watershed moment for me. Um, and then we start giving our story to all the guys um, over dinner and then throughout the presbytery meeting. And it's so funny. We... We, be, we tell them our dilemma first. Should we go or should we stay? And they're all like, you should stay. You should definitely stay because everyone is fleeing liberal yeah, places. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, please stay. Hold we need post. you. Yeah, we, we need, need you. you. Sure. Um, but then whenever we give the details of our situation, how you know um, we're going through this theological shift and all these theological uh, changes, I feel it feels like we're building an airplane in the air, you know, and... Uh, the particularly whenever we begin to give the makeup of our church, because our church was made up of young people who, for the sake of the mission of God, they were trying to plant this church in a really difficult city and and thereby foregoing having children mm-hmm. because couldn't afford it. Couldn't afford it. Um, they were foregoing starting Christian businesses. They were uh, some of them couldn't find a spouse because the just to find a godly spouse in Venice, Los Angeles is near about impossible. Um, and so I realized, oh my goodness, our people are foregoing the cultural mandate. They're foregoing the Great Commission in the name of the Great Commission. The, the, yeah, they're, they're, they're foregoing the cultural the mandate, mandate. In the name of the Great Commission. Exactly. Sacri- that's what I, that, I wrote a little piece on that about sacrificing the cultural mandate on the altar of the Great Commission. That's exactly what right. they were doing. And the refra- which, which, as we understand now, the... Those we, it's a huge mistake to even disambiguate. A- absolutely, the, the Great Commission is the realization and will be the realization of the original culture mandate. Exactly, exactly. They go to yeah. It's like yeah. the Great Commission is almost like the marching orders of how it, the 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 culture right. mandate now. Right. Adam fell, so he couldn't do it. A new Adam has come, so now you actually can do it. That's exactly yeah, right. exactly. And the refrain that I kept hearing in my head and that we would talk about as elders is what what. God told Saul, I require obedience and not sacrifice. Mm. We were sacrificing kamikaze style and for, and causing our parishioners to forego obedience. Yeah. Um, 
And there's a whole subsection, well, maybe the broader evangelical world doesn't even understand the cultural mandate as in any way binding at all. Mm -hmm. Now now that's just an old thing. Mm -hmm. That's the very first command that God gave to human beings, Mm -hmm. to be fruitful and multiply, have dominion. And yet, now it's just seen as, I don't know, that's old covenant, that's old school, we don't... That's a part of what it means to be human. That is what it means to be human. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's why we're here. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And uh, anyway, so... Uh, so That'd we, be a good another episode as well, really assessing that out and seeing because I mean, even af- after the flood, he uh, reaffirms the culture mandate to, again to Noah and a lot of pieces we could connect there. But I, even as I think in real time, I think that's a huge thing to unpack. Absolutely, about. absolutely. So, uh, so we we begin to wake up to this reality that our we are causing our people to, uh, like I said, like we were talking about, sacrifice the Great Commission on the altar, or the uh, the cultural mandate on the altar of the Great Commission. And whenever we described our situation to almost all of the men there, they were like, at first they were like, dude, please stay. Yes, stay. And they're all kind of like, huh. <laughs> it, you should just come join my church. Right. <laughs> so many of literally- and, and, and your baby was the only kid at all in your church, right? We had one baby. Yeah. One, one baby. baby, my yeah. baby, little Cal. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and we mm-hmm. couldn't afford it. Right, we were living in a tiny little apartment. You know, we we could bear, uh, just scraping by, mm-hmm. you know. But it was all for the Great Commission. It was all, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, so uh, so as we describe that to the men at the CREC, they begin to kind of see the. Oh, it might actually be wise for you to mm-hmm. to close this down. Uh, I don't think anyone came out and said you need to close down. But we had people say, "Yeah, I would tell people to leave your church." Mm-hmm. I would tell anyone who is sacrificing, like we were just talking about, anyone who is uh, sacrificing the the Dominion mandate on the altar of the Great Commission, they should leave. Mm-hmm. They should leave. Uh, and as we began to realize that, we that was kind of a all right. I think it's time mm-hmm. we're gonna have to close this close this down. And it was really scary because I didn't have a backup plan. Right. I was in that in the city for the city, sacrifice for Jesus. This is it. If to have a backup plan wouldn't be faith, you know? And so whenever we made the decision to, we finally made the decision to actually close it down, I had a sick child who had who needed constant medical attention, still does. Uh, I had no backup plan and no idea how I was going to make money. I haven't finished seminary. I was now under the conviction that I've got a lot of training I need to do. What am I going to do? Um. And so that's about to answer your very first question. <laughs> how? Why are we in this garage at this right. table this right here? What the podcast is is answering that question. That's it. That's it. Um, is uh, I I I knew I wanted to be a part of that culture that had hearty amens like that. And so I reached out. Well, back it up just a smidge. Uh, I, I planted the church with my best friends, and we have been doing ministry together for over a decade. And we, and I'll never forget Daniel Margheim, who podcast coming up with Daniel Margheim, Christian Mythos. Look for it; it's going to be awesome. Um, Daniel Margheim told me, uh, my, the co, one of the other elders with me, back in college, wherever the Lord calls you, let me know. I'm, I'm in. Hmm. And I was like, Oh, come on, are you serious? And then, sure enough, he moved, packs up and moves to L.A. with me. So I asked him again whenever we decide to close down the church. Hey, how important is it for us to keep our families together? And he's a very important. Okay. Uh, and so that became, well, we both had this conviction that we wanted to be a part of the CREC. One other reason was that he has, as I uh, 
reformed into the Pado baptist position. He went more into the Credo 1689 London Baptist. So we're like, we are meant to do ministry together. Right. Where can we go do ministry together? Right. And the CREC is just about the only spot. Right. Um, <laughs> and so that was also a, a factor, but we, uh, we wanted to stay together. And so we decided, okay, let's look at cities. Let's look at cities where we can go, uh, go faithfully. We felt called. We felt called. We 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 came to the belief that this cultural reformation model is the future for the church. Um, that we we it always has been. The future. It always has been. Yeah, the cultural reformation model that starts with, and it must start with the reformation in the church. Mm-hmm. In the pulpit and in the church and the people of God, yeah. and then that's and that's, then it's, that's that's the mustard seed that grows. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, so we were committed to this cultural reformation model. We began to realize, okay, I think honestly, and I still think this. I think the hope for our country is for the places where there's still sanity, like the Bible Belt, mm-hmm. culturally speaking. Yeah, for the gospel, hot gospel getting preached there, reformation within the church. Spilling out into the culture, mm-hmm. that then instead of the direction of cultural influence being from the coasts inward, as it's been for the last how many decades? Yeah, yeah. Well, that po- that poisonous culture is reaching its zenith with, you know, trannies twerking in front of kids, you know, and the murder of millions and millions of babies, and all this nonsense. All that people are now waking up. Even people who aren't Christians are seeing this is toxic. All right, and so it's re- that the, the toxicity levels are reaching their zenith, and I think people are going to wake up in the next few years, and they are already beginning to, to how it's unsustainable. It's eating itself and destroying itself. Now, what's going to replace it? It's going to be a, a culture of righteousness that's rooted yeah. in the Word of God. And so I believe that, the, that that shift of cultural influence will come from the middle of the country, re- reforming to the Word of God, building a beautiful, righteous culture, and then now reversing the trend. So we kind of had that conviction, and you can disagree. There's room to disagree about that. That's okay. Um, but that's what we came to, and we said, all right, let's find a place in the middle of the country um, <laughs> where we can go to work at Cultural Reformation. And so we picked a couple of cities that we both would be interested in where we had family close by and things like that. And uh, Nashville was the one that we landed on as the prime location uh, for multiple reasons, and or the Nashville area. So we looked up CREC churches in Nashville. I found two, one with robes and one with no robes. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, uh, the, CREC, the CREC has a kind of a, uh, a spectrum of liturgy, of high liturgy to low, low even the low liturgy is right. very high sure. from where I came from. Sure. And... Uh, and so on the high end, you've got clerical collars and robes, not for the parishioners, but for the for the <laughs> for the ministers and and the jewelry and everything. And you know what? I'll say this. I at the time just wasn't ready for the wizardry. Wasn't ready for the robes. I'm not saying never. That's well, and I'm not saying I'm against it. <laughs> yeah, and he's actually, not saying he's against it. I think I envy the robes. Yeah, yeah. That is, so I'm beginning to see the arguments. Mm. I'm, I'm, I, it's okay. It's cool. It's right. cool. It's cool. But I'll say that. Not ready. For, wasn't ready for it. We looked. We saw one with robes, one with no robes, and we said, "I just not ready for the robes." So we reached out to Pilgrim Hill Reformed Fellowship. I just went on their website, sent an email, and uh, this was right when we were making the decision to close the church down. 
And then I type up this like long, heartfelt email. We hadn't made the decision yet, but I was like, this is the direction we're going. This is my back. This is my history kind of theologically and the story of our church and well, family. I think, too, when you are on our, your website, you saw that we had previously run in, the, in, in similar circles yes, as well. And that's so right. that probably was helpful in realizing this guy knows me. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so I sent the email and was like, okay, Literally, like I said, no backup plan right. whatsoever. So I sent the email. Do you like me? Check yes or no. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And so I was basically like, I may be looking for a place. I have raised support. Would you be interested in having someone come <laughs> learn from you and help you? And uh, and I'd never, I didn't hear back. Or so he thought. <laughs> didn't hear back for a couple of weeks, and I was like, well. Because I, I get this email, and I'm like, wow, well, this Feels like an incredible <laughs> grace from God. I know this God because that I am that guy a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. And so this might be a wonderful grace from the Lord. So I write back a beautifully pastoral. Yeah, that's right. Oozingly empathetic letter. So I don't so I, I'm looking, I'm waiting for this email back. I'd never hear it. And I'm like, well, oh well. And so then we make the decision to close down. At this point, I'm like frantically losing mm-hmm. my mind of like, all right, uh, we are not a church in a month and a half, I don't have a job, right. okay? And so then I go, well, maybe that church, I'll just try one more time. So I get on to type up another email, and then it just strikes me. I'm just going to check my spam. Check my spam. Sure enough, like the next <laughs> day or even the same day, I can't remember, uh, I get it. I had this email back that was like, let's get on the phone. Let's talk about it. That's really exciting, and it's difficult, and just like wonderfully, as he said, very wonderfully pastoral. Um, and uh, and so we we ended up, going back and forth, getting on a few Zoom calls, and one thing led to another, and it was like, this is a, seems like an awesome yeah, fit. This, yeah. And uh, God, the kindness of the Lord. Mm. Man, because I, you know, like I didn't know what I was going to do, but mm-hmm. then to have, this really has proven to be like the perfect fit yeah. in almost every way. Yeah. Um, I would say every way that I can find it. Yeah, no, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful for you, thankful for God's kindness, um, and and I get how hard that season was when when I was had come under the conviction that I was being called to to, to plant and to plant more more locally to have more of a parish model. Um, I didn't know wh- who who my tribe was, yeah. and, and that's a disorienting, scary place. You know, mm. when you breathe certain air for a decade, you you know that world, and it's like who who are my people now? And I, I remember, in the kindness of God, as I was trying to answer that question, I took. A group of men down to a conference in Huntsville, Alabama, mm. that my, my buddy Larson Hicks put on, who's just a wonderful, encouraging man of God, um, on biblical masculinity, and I didn't even know it was a CREC conference. <laughs> <laughs> I knew of the CREC. I, I thought maybe, but again, when, when you're not part of that, it's it's intimidating. Oh yeah, um, it's it's really intimidating. And so I remember walking into that conference, and immediately there's 250 men singing psalms a cappella, mm. and I had never. Uh, experienced anything like that before, and it was absolutely transfiguring. Mm. And I remember uh, Larson, he was leading the, he, he put it on, he was leading the singing, came up to him afterwards, kind of told him my story, and gosh, he was an encouragement. He's like, man, not not only um, do I think you'd have be a good fit, I think we need you because we need to learn from you as well. Mm. But oh my gosh, this dude is just a, so he was just a win from the Lord in, in our sails to um, so it was cool just to see the kind of the Lord do that again, and for me to get to play that role a little bit of okay, we've we've built a little something here. Come along and put your hand to the plow. And so, man, I love that. So all that to say, um, yes. Yeah, so why are we doing this podcast? Yeah, that's the whole thing. <laughs> well, why are we doing this podcast? We're doing this podcast because 
that journey for me over the course of about three years mm. was one exhilarating, but two also incredibly trying. It was difficult, you know. I'm going through theological changes that on the one hand are exciting, but they are also it's scary to have yeah. your entire worldview shifting and the ground moving underneath your feet. I mean, Bodie Bakken put it well with the idea of fault lines, right? Mm-hmm. It's the idea that there were fault lines under the under underneath the surface in the evangelical world that people don't even see yet. Mm-hmm. But whenever everything starts to shake, you realize, oh, I'm here and not here. Mm-hmm. You know? And so it's it is scary. And so we 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 want to map out our Reformation journey mm-hmm. into what I'm calling dark roast Reformed theology. We can't just say Reformed theology because we're, we are a niche at some level, mm-hmm. not a small niche, but we are a, a particular expression of Reformed theology, that of Kuyperian, you know, our influences are Kuyper and Van Til and, you know... Uh, and Calvin, actually. And Calvin, and actually, <laughs> actually Calvin. Turns out Calvin has a lot of things to say about Calvinism. Right, 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 right. right. And so... Uh, just tulip. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so we, we, the CREC has a particular flavor, yeah, sure. and we want to make the case for that. Yeah, and, and we know we're, we're not alone. I mean, we, the Lord is in the midst of doing another Reformation in the Church. It's been 500 years. We're, we're due, and we're due. so we, we want to come alongside you if, if you would have us, if you're on that journey, because it's, it's, not, it's not an easy one, and um, you will get a lot of pressure, <laughs> right. a lot of warning um, about, are, are you joining a cult? Are you... Um, wh- whatever, and so it, it can be it can be scary, and so we we just want to say nope. We're just kind of boring reformed guys. We're just um, going back to the ancient path, um, <laughs> as as I heard Wilson said uh, somewhere. So I think that's our third Wilson usage. YouTube will only let you use three Wilson. Three, yeah, I think we've so, hit our yeah, limit. So that's it. He said, if you want to find us in a book of cults, we'll be under P for Presbyterian. <laughs> I mean, it's it really is just a return to reformed theology um, mm. that we 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 want to. Um, breathe the air of Geneva, and Come on now. we want to say, "Hey, the water's just fine." And it's a, and and, and that's where I'd say too. We've kind of used this language of of red pill, which is useful. Um, you're kind of waking up to what you had been a part of, and perhaps it's it's you want to go a different way. But I I love the the metaphor too of the wardrobe. You mm. know, it's, it's also walking through a wardrobe and, and seeing how big and vast and beautiful the gospel really is, mm. and how it really touches so much more than just your personal salvation, but the task of the Christian is nothing short of the reformation, the, the enchantment of holiness upon your city. Right. I mean, that's what you're tasked with. You're like, that's, I love the elves. Yeah. Make, make it Lothlorien, make it the most beautiful, Come on. the best, the, yeah. the, the most glorious place. That's what the task is. So. Yeah, I love that. The, uh, uh, the red pill metaphor breaks down a little bit Whenever we, whenever you think about in the Matrix, he wakes up to this like dingy, grimy yeah. reality. No. But we, but we, especially with that eschatological shift, right. wake up to this world oh, yeah. that is full of like victory and hope, right. and where, where the thaw has already begun in Narnia. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Which um, is on, on our way out. A Reformation wardrobe doesn't flow off the tongue quite as nice. <laughs> um, yeah, that would be. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But so where are we going? I'm just going to lay, lay out kind of the, the direction yeah. that we're going in this podcast. So our hope in the future, this was our kind of introduction episode to say, this is who we are. This is a little bit of our story, mm-hmm. where we've come from. And uh, But what our hope 
the service we want to provide to you, dear viewer, is to help you along in the Reformation journey. We're going to cover doctrines and ministry philosophies such as covenant theology, postmillennialism, patriarchy, Kyperian sphere sovereignty, presuppositionalism, baptism, liturgy, theonomy, and so much more. All these doctrines that really began to shape us and form us and reform us, um, we our, our goal for each of these is to steel man them, because we're what going... What does that mean? Some people don't know. Yeah, so uh, there's the, the logical fallacy in an argument is a straw man, where you make out your opponent's position as though uh, you give the weakest possible form, or you give a weaker form of, the, of your opponent's argument, and then you knock it over. Right. Um, well, but it's not the way they would articulate it. That's exactly right. right. It's not how they would articulate it. So we want to, as much as possible, in all of these doctrines and all of these ministry philosophies and all of these ideas, give the strongest, most charitable take on the opposition to our view, give that, and then bring in what we believe to be a biblical response and biblical reasoning behind why we've adopted these uh, positions. And so, yeah, we'll get, we're going to take covenant theology and postmillennialism and patriarchy and all these different ideas and give why people are opposed to them and give the best, like I said, mm -hmm. steel man version of that argument. And then we want to incorporate our journey with that, but then really go to the Word of God and say, what, what does God's Word say about this, and why have we come to the conviction that actually... We believe that patriarchy is the way. We actually believe that covenant theology is the way. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and even if you don't agree on every single nuance of everything, at least you'll understand both sides better yeah. so that we can iron sharpen iron. <laughs> exactly. Really, and the church can mature together. We're, we're not trying to entrench ourselves more in sides against each other. Right. We, we want the entire church to be more conformed to the Word of God. And, and to be also extra clear, we don't represent the CREC in this podcast. We, we are not the official spokespeople of the CREC. We're coming to the doctrines and conclusions that we've been led to in our journey. And, there, and the beauty of the CREC, actually, is that there is room to disagree on things that have traditionally split denominations, yeah. particularly baptism, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so we're going to articulate our view of baptism, uh, and we will give the most charitable take on the other side, whenever we get to that episode. Yeah. Um, but there is disagreement even within the CREC about some of these things. And so we'll try to make that clear as well sure. in the different episodes. Sure. But um, I think that pretty much covers... Is there anything else to close out with that you want to add? No, no. I'm just thankful for you. Um, again, you are you are um, the kindness of God to to us and to our, our corner of the kingdom, and um, may it be. Well, let me... I, I want to finish with saying that what a relief... It is to have a pastor. <laughs> I mean, you can't... So whenever you have just planted a church mm -hmm. and been on... I, I was on that journey for a decade. Yeah. And all the while struggling with this, like I said before, imposter syndrome, because I hadn't been truly tested. Mm -hmm. um, I just got... And then we'll, we'll get into it in future episodes, but that's a huge problem even in our evangelical world where we take... We're, the way I heard it put is we're pimping out our youth. We're taking their passion and their strength, giving them a pat on the butt and saying, yeah, go get them. Instead of giving them training, instead of telling them, hey, you need to actually sit under a wise man and be discipled for a while. You need to take some time to learn the doctrine of God before you plant a church, <laughs> you know? And so uh, the incredible relief it's been for me to, when we decided to close down that church and then move across the country to be a part of a church that is working actively in cultural reformation, it is 
one of the greatest decisions that I've ever made, and I think it will have. La- I believe that it will have lasting impact for generations. Mm-hmm. So that's one encouragement to you, dear listener and viewer. If you are debating about whether or not, okay, my church really has gone soft, and it's not the same in every church, but I will say this: it is so valuable to be a part to to do whatever it takes to be a part of a church body that loves the Word of God, that is, if you've come to these Cultural Reformation uh, convictions, and it's just constantly rubbing at your church. I've got friends who are just like, you know, rub it up against the leadership. Do not be a divisive figure. If you come to these doctrines, don't be divisive in your church and like lead a coup or just constantly harp at your pastor. Mm -hmm. You know, it takes wisdom, but you need to know when it's time to say, okay, I need to go find a new Mm -hmm. church. I need to find a church. And I'll say this for me. It, it was the best decision. I, I had to move across the country to find the kind of church mm-hmm. that I wanted to be a part of, and it was 1,000% worth well, it. And, and I will say, too, um, if you come to our church, you will see that we are very much in process. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of... Um, we well, how have, old are we? We, have lot, we are two and a half years old. Wow. And so we have a lot of longings that there has been some uh, sweet fruit, but we are very much in process, just like the church always is. Semper Reformanda. That's exactly so right. We have... Not arrived at all, but but we, we we long to mature. Well, with that, my charge for you guys, and this is so we're starting this company, the Forge, mm-hmm. and the reason that we exist is to provide Reformation resources to you, so that you might better be equipped to build, defend, and expand the kingdom of God. So that's my charge for you guys. I pray that this is a a, a, a resource that is helpful to you, and as we continue week by week working through these doctrines and these ministry philosophies that it would serve you where you're at to build, defend, and expand the kingdom where God has placed you. With that, we'll see you on the next episode.